Good morning, everyone. Exodus chapter 3. God, in chapter 2, heard the cry of help of the Israelites who were in bondage to the Egyptians, essentially in slavery to slave labor. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. It's a beautiful passage leading into chapter 3. Now Moses had already fleed Egypt after killing an Egyptian who was mistreating his fellow Hebrews. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And this is another name for the area of Mount Sinai. Um, so that's interesting. A lot happens on Mount Sinai. Indeed, in this very book, the book of Exodus, after the Israelites are freed from Egypt, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. So imagine that side for a moment. You're seeing a bush burning, Moses now an adult. Obviously, he's seen stuff burn, and he knows what happens and that it, it turns to ash and eventually you know, destroys whatever it's burning, and it disintegrates. And now he's seen this bush, and he's seen the fire go through the twigs of this bush, and yet the fire just keeps burning, and the bush just stays there and doesn't disintegrate and doesn't turn to ash. I mean, it's a miracle, and it's something that Moses was astounded by what he saw because only God could do something like that. It's something I, you know, I've obviously never witnessed. What an, what an amazing miracle. And God was going to speak to Moses and draw his attention to this bush and eventually get Moses' attention. And, you know, something I thought of this morning, and I don't think it's the, um, I don't think that it is what God is clearly trying to indicate to us. But I, I just I saw something this morning I just wanted to share with you. Isn't it interesting that as a believer in Jesus, that we could be on fire for Jesus? And I think you know what I mean by that, where our our faith is on the rise, where we're excited about God, where, you know, Jesus is on our lips. His word is flowing through us, where we want to serve him and we're just excited about the things of God and his kingdom now and his kingdom coming. And we're living for the Lord. We're on fire for the Lord, but we're not burning up. Isn't that neat? We're on fire for the Lord, but we're not burning up. And just like this bush, and may we be on fire like that in a good way. You know, it'd be bad to be on fire, right? As a human being to be on fire, that wouldn't be good. We'd burn up too. But if we're on fire and we don't burn up, that's of the Lord. So. Hallelujah. So when the Lord when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, Moses came to look at the bush. God called to him, Moses, from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And that, you know, you see that all throughout the scriptures. Here I am to someone, especially a man of God, when God comes to speak to them. Here I am. It's a very submissive kind of position where you just say, God, I'm here, speak to me. And 
man, may our hearts be in a position like that where we just want to hear from the Lord and do what he says. Then he said, God said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for this place in which you're standing is holy ground. And this is um, setting up Moses for the future too on other wonderful things of God that are going to happen on this mountain. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. <clears throat> and you know, no one had ever seen God, and there was a, a, a concern about looking at God directly, rightfully so. And you know, God is identifying, you know, he chose a family, Abraham's family, and he's he's telling Moses, This is the God who's speaking to you. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, I fully believe that God led his people, Jacob, to Egypt in order to survive and multiply. But in their survival and multiplication in Egypt, it turned out to be a situation where they ended up being slaves. And they've cried out and God has heard their cry and now he's going to free them. And they were there a long time, hundreds of years before God set them free, and they're going to end up going into the desert, but ultimately he's giving them the land of Israel, uh, the land that he promised Abraham, and that's that's where we're headed. But God has seen how they're being mistreated, and God is going to deliver them from that. He's heard their cry. <clears throat> now, this is a, a wonderful thing, and I want to talk to you about this for a little bit. God identifies with those who are suffering and with those who have been mistreated. And you can definitely see that throughout the scriptures and praise God for that, that we have a God that hears our cry and doesn't want his people to be oppressed. And it's a wonderful thing. Now, from that, there is a a philosophy out there called liberation theology. And liberation theology, theology says that this is the hallmark of God. This is like the main thing of God, that God wants to free people from oppression. And basically what liberation theology does is it attempts to reframe the Bible and to see it in light of this context as being the number one context of the Bible. And that what God is primarily about is not having classes, not having rich people and poor people. But instead, God is all about helping those who are oppressed free themselves from oppression. And the, the thing is about a liberation theology is there's truth in it. I mean, I think God does care for those who are oppressed. So... It's not entirely wrong, but what happens is is it, it it's become now where people 
um, have adopted like a Marxist way of thinking that the whole Bible is about this and that really um, we should always be trying to take away rich people and and help poor people and that really it's wrong in a sense to be rich or to be successful is is actually wrong and it's it's bad and automatically if you are rich or you have assets then you are automatically should be seen as an oppressor so essentially what what you do is you reorchestrate the way that you look at life and you look at everything through the lens of the oppressor or the oppressed and you identify with the oppressed and you're automatically seeing the oppressor as bad and essentially you know what we have going on in Israel right now where Israel was attacked by um, the Palestinians from Gaza and most of the world is seeing Israel as an oppressor and the uh, the the uh, Palestinians as the oppressed so you have a lot of liberals and and Marxist thinkers identifying with the people of Gaza because Israel is an oppressor. So what happens is, is that's just the way that people then try to view life. And it, 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 it has elements of truth, but when it's taken to the degree that it is, it's, it's false. Because if you look at Jesus, he said that there will always be poor among you. And Jesus when he was here on earth, he, he did, he did identify with those who were um, sick, you know, who he came to heal the sick, not the righteous. Right. And he identified with, you know, the tax collectors and drunkards and everything else. He wanted people to see him for who he is, but he did not really get engaged in politics. Um, He did not really get into class distinction. The, The thing is, is I don't see the Bible as saying that, you know, everyone needs to be the same and that everyone who has resources is bad, uh, like you kind of have in a a Marxist um, socialism type philosophy. So the Bible is not filled with that. But what it is doing is it's saying, you know what, if you have been blessed, if you should see how you can be generous. You should see how you can care about your fellow man around you. Jesus is about transforming a person's life so that they do care about the needs of others. But I don't believe it's a governmental system to mandate that being rich or being an owner of a business or whatever means automatically that you should be looked at as an oppressor and and seeing life completely through that lens but yet god has the people god is in we should be looking to help the world around us and help people around us so it's not a governmental system christianity is not a governmental system where everyone has to have the same amount of things and everyone has to have the same amount of wealth or or something of that nature but it is a transformational change in the human being to because of Christ being in us caring about our fellow man so anyways this gives you an idea maybe you haven't heard of liberation theology but 
it is a significant thing and it's it's really something that's on the rise today uh typically you know in america it would be more in the, in a in a radical democrat or liberal um they would be focused on this type of concept and this is kind of where it comes from so it 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 they really identify with god's hearing god hearing the cry of the israelites to not be in bondage so uh again think it's a good thing to help people get out of bondage and we should care very much about helping our fellow man but uh it doesn't mean that everyone should be a socialist or marxist or that capitalism in itself is bad because capitalism in itself meaning when you can work hard and be successful is it's what it's what moves countries forward it's what moves peoples forward it's it's what brings about innovation and brings about things that are better for all of society. I mean, even thinking of someone who creates like an iPhone and technology and computers, if if there was no incentive in order to create something because essentially everything that you did was just going to be shared, then people would not innovate or the world would not progress in good ways like it has because of innovators. So it, it it's not... It's not good to take away incentive to be successful, but it is good to take mankind and help them understand the gospel and the heart of God. And with their success, then not just focus on self, but how can they be generous and helpful and ultimately turn people to Jesus and care about others. So uh, I hope that gives kind of a, a good background to that. Moving on, therefore, come now, verse 10, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Imagine that task. Oh, yeah, Pharaoh, you're just going to walk in and say, hey, let my people go. And that's kind of what he's saying. But yet, you know, I think God knew who, who, who he was choosing. Remember, we've already talked about that Moses stood up and he actually killed an Egyptian. And he stood up at the well and, and uh, helped his now father-in-law's daughters um, who were being taken advantage of at the well or, or not being treated fairly there. So Moses has this backbone in him. But yeah, he's concerned about this enormous task, but God's going to be on his side. So God said, certainly I will be with you, hallelujah. He's going to be with Moses in this task to get people out of Egypt. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So he's going to bring them back to Horeb, to Sinai, to worship. And then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, so no, you know, Moses is not in Israel in Egypt right now. He's not with the Israelites, and he's gonna go back there and he's like, How are they gonna listen to me? Uh he's gonna say, The God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? They may want to know who who sent me. And what shall I say to them? Moses said. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. God furthermore said, to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. 
And this gets into a, you know, an interesting conversation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but this is where the I am has has sent me, and God gives the name I am who I am, and from that we 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 get Jehovah. From that we get Yahweh. You may have heard God called, and you may have heard of. Technically, this combination of consonants is known as the tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton. And it's, it's a rather complex conversation as to what God's name is. And, and a lot of times the Israelites did not want to use the name of God. They thought to call him by a name was like disrespectful to him because he is above even a name. So that is kind of where Yahweh, the name Yahweh comes from. I am who I am. And and, and that's a, an appropriate name for God. You might recall in the Gospel of John, if you've been there, we just went through that at our church. There's seven I am statements. Uh, I am the light of the world, right? Um, I am the good shepherd. Um, and, and John used, or Jesus used that about himself to say that I am the I am. Because uh, Jesus is the Trinitarian God, but anyways, <clears throat> this is where he gets his name, or we where we where we come to name him. So go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, "The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about what you what has been done to you in Egypt." See, God does care about those who are, especially His people, right, who are being kept in bondage. So I said. I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, God is saying, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know. God is saying that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. He won't do it unless he's forced into it. So God says, so I, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And this is going to be what's known as the 10 plagues. And God is going to do a series of plagues on Egypt and on the Egyptian Pharaoh because he will not listen to Moses. Ultimately, he will, but it won't be until after the 10th plague, which is called Passover, that God, that Egypt, Pharaoh will finally relent and let God's people go. God says in verse 21, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. This is quite remarkable. God's already telling Moses that, that the Egyptians after all these plagues, are going to actually turn over their possessions to the Israelites to not send them out empty-handed. Listen to this. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. So God is not only going to set them free out of Egypt and ultimately into the promised land in the years to come, but he's not going to send them empty-handed. The Egyptians are going to be want them to go, and God's going to put it on the Egyptians' hearts to to send them out, even with the wealth and prosperity of Egypt. 
God is going to take care of his people in an amazing way. And now we are going to get into that as we get into chapter 4. And we'll see Pharaoh's heart be hardened and he won't let God's people go. But ultimately, through these plagues, God's people are going to set, be set free. It's going to be one of those amazing miracles of God in all of history. And it's important as it points forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who sets us free from our sin. So God bless you all, and we'll see you at chapter 4.